Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Those of you who have been with us for a while know that we're going through the book of Genesis and we've arrived this week at Genesis chapter 9. We've just finished our study of the flood and... What we read that caused the flood is in Genesis chapter 6, a couple chapters back, it says that the Lord, Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart and he said, I will blot out man. So that's what caused the flood. The flood was caused because God looked at the wickedness and it was overwhelming and it caused him to regret making us. So our our father in heaven uh, had anger and regret and the flood came and wiped out everybody but Noah and his family. We see that account in chapter 7 and then Chapter 8, the flood subsides, and a very sweet note at the end of chapter 8, after this uh, terrible destruction caused by our sin, um, God yet blesses us, and we read this sweet promise at the end of chapter 8 where it says that God promised that he would never again curse the ground on the account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and so... You know, once again, we have the diagnosis that our, our intents are evil. God never panders to us. God never gives us a diagnosis and then goes out of the hospital room and tells our wife the straight dope. God gives us a straight dope. He gives us an accurate diagnosis. And here he says, For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Some of you are mothers, see that in your children, right? You teachers. But then he says this at the end of chapter 8. He says, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. And the rainbow is this promise of God to us that he will keep good on that promise. He'll never again wipe all out again. And then this sweet promise, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. We take this for granted. You know, we look at uh, the changing of the seasons, and boy, we were ready for it this week, weren't we? <laughs> oh, man, I was ready for it. I was aching for sunshine. And so it comes, and we just take it for granted, but this is only happening because God has promised that it will happen. There's nothing, nothing that comes to us from God's hand of blessing that is not upheld by him. Nothing is an accident. Not spring, not summer, not winter, not autumn. Not the running of the, uh, uh, not the running of the maple trees, the sugar maples, the syrup. So anyhow, so this week we pick up with Genesis chapter nine. The flood has happened, and God has promised that uh, the seasons, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, they'll they'll, they'll not cease. And then we read this. 
This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. This is the word of the Lord. And we say thanks be to God because we know that we really are not thankful for the word of God. And so we say thanks be to God because we want to bring our hearts into conformity with God's word. And so it's a discipline. Those of you that are not normally here, it's a discipline that we go through to say thanks be to God because we're really not thankful. And I couldn't think of many passages where we're really not thankful more than this. And so let's, let's dive in. But before we dive in, may I read something to you? This is a little-known fact that I want to share with you, all right? I'm being somewhat facetious. It's found in Isaiah 55, verses 7 to 9, where we read, beginning with verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his... What? Anybody know? And the unrighteous man is to forsake his thoughts. It's not real PC in a university community, is it? (laughs) Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In other words, the very beginning of Christian conversion is for us to forsake our thoughts and to return to the Lord. And it's not because we're know-nothing. I was in a class this last week, taught in this, no, I forget the departments, joint offering in history and something or other. And uh, the purpose of the class was to show the stupidity of Christians who believe in the creation. And so I was asked to come in and put on a clown suit. And so I, I asked Ben Burlingham if he'd come in and wear a clown suit with me. And so Ben came in and talked smart, and then I talked stupid. Is that about? That's probably pretty accurate. But what was interesting was that the professor, a fine gentleman, uh, Jewish Trotskyite, um, that's that's what he told me at the end. Um, But I had taken him for a Marxist. Um, and he um, said right before Ben and I spoke that there were only three rules in the class. One rule was no hitting. One rule was no yelling. No what? Yeah, no hitting, no throwing things. And then the third one was no name calling. And so Ben got up and read from the material they'd been given to read how Ben and I were called in the material no nothings. 
K-N-O-W, nothings. In other words, ignoramuses. Let me tell you, unbelievers know precisely what they're about, which is to change your thinking processes. They have thoughts for you. And now I'm going to tell you, God has thoughts for you. God doesn't have sentiments for you. Isn't it too bad that religion doesn't exist on the basis of sentiment? Because then we could all just sit next to a frilly curtain with a, a cup of Joe, right? And nice pretty hair and be spiritual. With our Bibles open on the table. Early morning. And then all through the day we could just think what a great Christian we are because we had our morning devotions. That's a sentiment. But what God says is that when we come to him, God says it's a conversion of our what? Our thoughts. That we're to forsake our thoughts and return to him. It's very interesting. The Romans says, be not conformed to this world. What part of this world? Well, obviously the thoughts. But be transformed by the renewing of your sentiments and your emotions. Is that what it says? No. It says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so, as I keep going in this text in Isaiah, here's what it says next. It talks about the wicked man forsaking his thoughts. And then it says, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen, if there's any place that we should uh, be aware of this, it's, it's in a university community. We cannot have our thoughts conformed to the pattern of this world and be a Christian. I mean, if God says his thoughts are above our thoughts as high as the, as the heavens are above the earth, then that probably means that the received wisdom of the academy, the university, higher education, is contrary to God. And I think in principle we're all willing to accept that, right? Because after all, the apostle Paul says in Corinthians that the, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God, right? And so... You know, in a certain sort of cosmic way, we're, we're prepared to think that God's sort of cosmically thoughtful and, and that his thoughts are above the university's thoughts. But we never quite get to the point where we're, gonna, where we're ready to say sp specifically, right? Well, it's very sweet of God because God's specific in his word. <laughs> And so this morning, we get a wonderful dose of God's thoughts being higher than our thoughts. And I hope you're all just very excited, right? And happy to hear it, right? Right? Come on, come on. Come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, good, good, good. I was hoping it was that way. Okay, so let's dive in. All right, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons. Huh, that's interesting. What does that mean? Well, it means God blessed Noah and his sons. Okay, right? And said to them. Now, what does them refer to? Did you notice them refers to an all-male group? 
got to notice it. If you're going to get your thoughts up to God, who is higher than the heavens are above the earth in his thoughts, and stop rutting in the, in, in, in the septic tank with the pigs, if you're going to have your thoughts, it, God's thoughts, high, high up above, you have to notice that it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them. Okay? Now, what point am I making? I'm making the point that all through Scripture, God always deals with the male as a representative of the female. Okay? That's the principle. What's going on there is that God is speaking to the men of the family. He's not speaking to the women of the family. Now, I know because, as I've told you often, I created feminism when Mary Lee and I were in high school. All right? I know you're trained to think, well, this is just God's word being revealed in such a way that it conforms itself to the ancient patriarchal paradigm. And I say, really? So God was up in heaven and God said to himself, now how will they best receive this? Is that what God was doing? You know, if I talk to the women, won't the men feel a little bit of their pride messed up? You know, I better talk to the men because if I don't talk to the men, the men are never going to be on board with this. So I'll conform myself to the ancient patriarchal paradigm. And that's how we think. Tell me the truth. That's how we think. We think that all of scripture is written by man in his best inclinations what God must be. We think that the Bible is the record of one particular people group's search for transcendence. And so it reflects all the sins and stupidities of that people group. And here's such a stupidity. I mean, God. I mean, you know, have you not heard of Margaret Thatcher? And Hillary Clinton? <laughs> I mean, really, going to the men. How do you think Hillary liked it when God came to Bill? Or Chelsea? Isn't it amazing how we can read a phrase like that and just go right over the top of it? It just don't mean nothing. Because I determine what means something and what means nothing in the word of God. And I'm just going to promise you. So this morning, so last night I wake up and I can't sleep, right? Went to bed reading people on the text, but then in the middle of the night I picked back up the New York and I was reading this article about the Irish Republican Army. And back in the early 70s, the Irish Republican Army made a, a, a drastic change in the way they went about their, their uh, uh, well, it depends on your perspective, I'm not going to get caught in that one, their freedom fighting or their rebellion, whatever you want to call it, depends on whether you're Irish or whether you're British. Um, but anyhow, what they did was there were these two young women who were pretty, pretty good looking and, you know, a catch. But these women didn't want to be a part of the normal sort of women's auxiliary the IRA. They wanted to be full IRA members, okay? And so th this article records how the IRA dealt with the request of these two, I think there were 20 at the time, desire to be full members of the army and to carry out the bombings, okay? And to be carrying the guns. 
And there was a council of men, and the men decided to bring the women in. Okay, you all with me. Then they talked about Margaret Thatcher and how she allowed one of them to, to, to leave jail after many years of a hunger strike. They thought she was going to die. And then the second one was also allowed to leave. So there, there's Margaret Thatcher. And then I get up this morning, and I have an email from a friend in a major metropolitan area who I've been friends with for about a decade. He's a man that struggles with homosexual temptation. And he was explaining to me that a couple dudes from IU who have a popular YouTube count, uh, channel had come to his city and, 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 and they met with their fans. And their fans, and oh, these men are homosexuals. And they'd met with their fans who, he said, uh, you know, they were a typical gathering of a bunch of uh, sort of... Uh, Oh, I forget the word he used, but they all came together with these heroes that have a YouTube count. And, and, and that's not important. What is important is he'd taken a couple pictures, and one of the pictures was, was of a couple, a man and a woman, who were so excited to meet this, this homosexual couple. And so there's a picture of them. And the man and the woman, they look somewhat similar. One has long hair, the woman, one has short hair, the man. But then he says, but the backstory, he was over there, and he said the backstory is that the woman actually um, is a woman, but the man is actually a woman. And that what they really are is they're twins, and their mother was there, and he was talking to their mother, and she was talking to him about how delightful it was that she was paying for the one that had been a woman to become a man. In other words, this mother has her twin daughters there. One of them is a woman, one is a man, they're both women, and they're so excited to be there talking to a homosexual couple. Now, am I bringing this up so that we can feel superior to them? No. No. Not at all. They is us. They are you. Because every single time we go across a phrase like this in Scripture, and we think it doesn't matter that God spoke to the male representatives of the family, we have given in to the trafficking in sex that permeates our world. This is sex trafficking. You say, oh, no, this isn't sex trafficking. That's something entirely different. And I go, no, 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 it isn't. What do you think it is when doctors get paid by the mother to operate on her child to try to replumb the child so that the child gets what they want sexually. If that isn't sex trafficking, I don't know what it is. And what about the whole concept of having a YouTube channel that's devoted to calling good evil and evil good, calling heterosexual homosexual and homosexual heterosexual? This is sex trafficking. This is what permeates the United States of America. This is us. We never stop trafficking in sex. And so we read something like this, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, and we think that it doesn't matter that it's Noah and not his wife, that it doesn't matter that it's the sons and not the daughter, and it doesn't matter who he spoke to. That's just the preface. Pastor, would you get on with the text? 
Aye, aye. Here we go. You ready? Be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> Aren't you glad we, we just kept going? I could have gotten caught in, in, a, in a swamp of controversy. <laughs> Come on, people. Come on. I'm sorry. This is... You're not surprised, are you? <laughs> this is for you, Bob. <laughs> You're welcome. We have guests that I know, but I don't think I've ever preached to you before, have I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here it is in all, in all its beauty. <laughs> Anyhow, I'm happy you're here. Thank you. Okay, so let's move on past the, 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 the gender-specific grammar, and let's go to the command, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, you all know exactly what we all think of this. What we think is the earth done been filled, right? And again, back then, your children were your wealth, and you needed to have children to provide for you in your old age, and this was an ancient, patriarchal, fecund, fertile culture where people didn't know that you could not have children, and sex is so much better when it's not complicated with the possibility of pregnancy. Right? Right? And so the United States foreign, uh, foreign, uh, foreign aid has been typically characterized by exporting birth control and contraceptive devices and IUDs and condoms and sometimes we have a, a very, very um, righteous reason, namely AIDS. Sometimes it's just our... Sometimes it's just our desire to keep the poor from reproducing, right? I mean, look, people, let's be honest. Why would the richest country in the world export contraception all over the world as one of the principal initiatives of its foreign aid? Why would we do that? Some of you remember the story I tell of working for uh, a patrician north, side, uh, north shore of Boston man and his wife. And I've described this to you before. The house sits on a cliff overlooking Lobster Cove in Manchester by the sea. And the wealth, there's five different types of alarm systems in the house. Um, I mean, this was an estate. I counted them one day, the seats I was to, to keep up. 45 uh, cast iron, chaise lounges, chairs, seats all over the yard. 45 outside. Okay, And one day, uh, if you ever go to Boston, you'll see a hospital that says Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital. Any of you ever seen that? That's, that's this man. That's Josiah Spalding. That was the man. He ran that hospital. And his wife ran the aquarium, Helen, on the board of Georgetown. Okay? So one day, Cy comes home, and he decides he's going to be very democratic this day. And that means he's going to help me out in the yard. And so he comes out, and he was a Democratic man. He was actually a very uh, likable man. And I'm digging up a huge patch of ground where the grass had died. I'm going to put down new soil, and I'm going to plant grass again. Everything has to be perfect, and I loved it. I loved doing stuff like that. 
But it's a hot day, and I'm sweating, so he thinks he's going to come over to help me. So he gets a shovel, I have a shovel, and we're digging out. And, you know, when men work, they talk, right? And so we begin to talk, and he tells me about this situation where somebody was going to have a child, and the child, uh, it was a very sad case where the child was blind. And so the mother gave birth to a blind child. And he was talking about what a sad thing this was, and then he said to me, you know, Tim, he said, that's why we need abortion. And it was like a non sequitur, you know. It's like, I didn't know that we were talking about abortion. I thought we were talking about how sad it was that this woman had a blind child. What, what, what? And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, that's why we need abortion. Well, <laughs> at that point, you can imagine how I am. It's like, dude back off, you know, I'm no longer a willing participant in this conversation, you know, now what am I going to say to Mr. Spalding? And he said, we need abortion because of overpopulation. Now think about this, he's talking about a child that's born blind, how sad it is, then he says that's why we need abortion, and then he says, we need abortion because there are just too many people in the world. And He's patrician and lives on the north shore of Boston. And he and his wife both are generations down the line from extreme wealth. Now think about this, people. And all of a sudden, as I thought about it, it came to me. What? What came to me was the rich always prophylact the poor. The rich always see the teeming masses of the poor as a threat to their perquisites. Do you understand this? And so Mr. Spalding, who was a liberal Republican, not a Democrat, he ran John Anderson's campaign in Massachusetts, but he has this notion that he should, you know the, the term noblesse oblige? That he should be benevolent, that he should be tolerant, that he should be magnanimous, that he should be expansive, that he should be democratic. And yet here are the teeming masses of the world, and they're just populating all the time. And then you have somebody giving birth to a little child who's blind, and that's why we need abortion. Do you understand? And the world is too full of people. And listen, his thought processes are perfectly understandable to every single one of us. When you think of what poverty millions and millions of people are being born into constantly in this world, think of how easy it would be for us to take the position that people should stop having children, right? And so we say, look, the world is full. It's time to stop being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. The earth done been filled, right? Right? When I was a younger man, uh, the Club of Rome and Paul Ehrlich and all these guys were saying that by, you know, the 1980, 85, 90, there were going to be mass starvation and riots all over the world because especially India and China weren't going to be able to, re to, to, to produce enough food. And then the Green Revolution hit and... Wonder of wonders, I've lived through it. China and India both became uh, capable of producing enough food in their countries for their people. 
God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And if the world, how much more does the church today uh, refuse to obey this command? Just refuse. There's almost no difference between the church and the world today in obeying this command of God. Christians believe that the earth is filled and that it's really selfish to have children. And so it's wrong for God to speak to Noah and his sons as representatives of their family. It's wrong for us to be fruitful and multiply. And it's like, give me a gun. Let me shoot myself. You know? What is the point of having the Bible? What's the point of having a preacher? The academics, I mean, we should just get NPR to send us a PhD every Sunday. (laughs) Now, here's something interesting. Do you know that in ancient Mesopotamia, all over the place, there are flood stories, flood epics, the epic of Gilgamesh, this, that, and the other thing, right? And one of the main ones, which you, I think, can see at the British Museum, all right, is called the, and I have trouble getting this name right, it's called the, the Atrahasis epic. Okay, it's spelled A-T-R-A-H-A-S-I-S, the Atrahasis epic. I want to read to you a little bit from it, all right? So all these ancient epics, all of them, they're pagan, so it's gods and goddesses, right? But they talk about the flood, right? But it's fascinating how their description of the flood, what causes it and what the god's response is. Why the gods bring it to pass and how the gods deal after the flood is over. And so this is the Atrahasis epic. And I'm reading interspersed. It will actually be quotes from the epic, but it will also be scholars talking about the epic. All right. So the scholars say, after 1,200 years, the population has increased so much. Now, mind you, this is the scholars. Like, okay. After 1,200 years, they're describing the epic. And they say, after 1,200 years, the population has increased so much that Enlil has trouble sleeping, one of the gods, okay? And then the actual epic, quote, the country was as noisy as a bellowing bull. The god grew restless at the racket. Enlil had had to listen to the noise. He addressed the great gods. The noise of mankind has become too much. I'm losing sleep over the racket. Give the order that Serapu disease shall break out. All right, so what's going on, the scholars tell us, is this epic is showing us that the gods have had it with the overpopulation and the noise. Why did God send the flood? God send the flood, why? It wasn't because of overpopulation. Why was it? It was the wickedness. But not in this pagan epic. It's overpopulation. And so they propose the way to deal with it is Malthus, right? Thomas Malthus, it's it's plague. 
So they're going to send a disease that's going to kill people and whittle down the numbers a little bit so that the gods can stand us and aren't listening to us, you know, bellering like bulls. After the plague, though, things grow worse. This is the scholars again. And the gods decide what? To starve man and to close woman's womb. That's the scholars, all right? And here... They go on, they say, the noise becomes tremendous, and the gods decide no means of nourishment shall reach the human race. In addition, one of the gods named Enlil decrees infertility. Quote, let the womb be too tight to let the baby out. Unquote. And then this from the epic. Quote, when the second year arrived, they had depleted the storehouse. When the third year arrived, the people's looks were changed by starvation. When the fourth year arrived, their upstanding bearing bowed. Their well-set shoulders slouched. The people went out in public, hunched over. When the fifth year arrived, a daughter would eye her mother coming in. A mother would not even open the door to her daughter. When the sixth year arrived, they served up a daughter for a meal, served up a son for food. This is their explanation of the coming of the flood. These pagans in this epic. And they say overpopulation annoyed the gods. The gods first gave them over to the plague. Then the gods gave them over to starvation and the gods tried to close their wombs. And they got to the point where they were engaged in cannibalism. So then, the flood, in this epic, the flood is decreed. Then after the flood, the scholars sum up the rest of this epic, this ancient pagan account, thusly, quote, after seven days and nights of rain, the flood subsides and Atrahasis disembarks and offers a sacrifice. All right, isn't that interesting? The hungry gods smell the fragrance and gather, quote, like flies over the offering, unquote. Enki persuades Enlil to adopt a more humane plan for dealing with the population and noise problem. Enki and the womb goddess Nintu decide that henceforth one-third of the women will not give birth successfully. A Pasitu demon will, quote, snatch the baby from its mother's lap. And they also create several classes of temple women who are not allowed to have children. And then this is an excerpt, this is an excerpt from the actual epic, quote, in addition, let there be a third category among the peoples, among the peoples, women who bear and women who do not bear. Let there be among the peoples the Pashito demon to snatch the baby from the lap of her who bore it. Establish Yugbaptu women, Antu women, and Igisitu women, and let them be taboo. And so, stop childbirth. God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's, that's God's hopeful message to man after the flood. The epics of the pagans, what do they say? Well, after the flood, we're now going to make it so that the women will give birth to stillborns, will miscarry, that their wombs won't open, and that there will be a third of the women that won't be able to, we're going to put a spell on them. We are going to shut down 
population growth. And then what happens when the Israelites go down to Egypt? What happens in Egypt? The Israelites, the Hebrews, reproduce so much that Pharaoh decides that they're enemies, and Pharaoh says, we're going to have to kill the little Hebrew babies. He tries to enlist the midwives to his scheme. He's afraid, what? That the poor will turn on him. Listen, there's absolutely nothing new, nothing new in the wickedness that seduces us to exchange the thoughts of God for the thoughts of man. Sexual polymorphous perversity is nothing new. Ancient Greeks had it quite fine. When I studied Greek at Madison, Professor Fowler explained to us one of the translations that we could not get properly. And it, it ended up that the translation was about little boys having, having arrows uh, branded on the bottoms of their feet so older men could watch and see in the dirt where a little boy prostitute was and, and follow him. And so they branded arrows on his feet. That's what I learned in the classics department at UW-Madison. And we know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happened prior to the flood. We know what God said after the flood. And it is true of man, and I use the word man inclusively because that's what God does in the Hebrew of the Old Testament. The word Adam is the word translated man in the old translations, and it includes women. And it's true of man that if God says yes, man says no. If God says no, God says yes. Man is the argument department of Monty Python with God. It does not matter what God commands. It does not matter how he describes. It doesn't matter what he constructs. Our response is always to hell with it. That's who we are. That's who we are. And it's not until we understand that that's who we are and how we are that we begin to have any comprehension of why it required the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us from sin. The blood of Jesus Christ shed from the cross makes it incomprehensible without this kind of bloodshed, of rebellion, of denial, of, of, of just unbelievably perverse thinking and teaching and, and thoughts. And that's who you are. That's not who they are. That's who you are right now. You. That's who I am. Okay? Now, what are Christians? You know what Christians are? Christians are those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says if any man is in Christ, born again, regenerated, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, if that's true, can we start reading again, acting as if we're born again? All right, so let's try it out. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Now that's cool. 
Because that means I can be a woman. I can be a man. That means I can raise my little boys to be men and my little girls to be women. That means that I don't have to treat women like sex objects. I can treat them like my mother and my sister and my daughter, whom I adore. That means that I don't have to treat my husband like he's a nincompoop. But I can treat him with respect. Why, I could even be like Sarah, who called her husband Lord. And she didn't think it diminished her. (laughs) Of course, he loved her. Well, Abraham, not always. (laughs) And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful. Are you kidding me? I thought I had to go through graduate school before I could even think about getting married. And then I thought I had to get my career established. And then I thought I better not have more than two. Tie the tubes after two. Because that's what my Christian parents told me I had to do. You know, they told me that a womb was a lifestyle. They told me that marriage was really all about having a best friend and companionship and and having destination weddings. Read this morning, average wedding now $37,000. San Francisco, I think it's $57,000. Long Island, no, Long Island's $57,000. I think San San Francisco is $67,000 and New York City is like (laughs) $87,000. Oh, man, how can you be fruitful and multiply when you're paying off college at the right school and then paying off graduate school and then getting established in your career and getting a good, you know, walk up or... I mean, you can't afford... You have to go to the right schools. Your children have to start saving for their preschool. You've got to get them lined up for the preschool. I can't be fruitful and multiply. (laughs) You know, if I multiply, it's so selfish. (laughs) Yeah, right. If you don't multiply, it's selfish. Ask any mother of three, let alone six or eight children. Who's selfish? The mother that doesn't have children or the mother who has children? Or a better way of saying it is, if God sent us his Holy Spirit to sanctify us. Who do you think's more sanctified, the mother with no children or one child or the mother with five? <laughs> and how about the dad? Did you ever think about the poor dad? Imagine the freedom that comes to Bloomington, Indiana, to Christian undergraduate and graduate students when they read that they can be women and men that they can be fruitful and multiply, that they can make whoopee with a purpose. (laughs) Love, okay? With a purpose. In fact, multiple purposes, unitive and procreative. You know, like the Roman Catholics say, all right? And then the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, they're given. And you go, (laughs) okay, Tim, let's have the benediction. I think I know where we're headed with that one. Ain't good. I'd be a vegan. I'd be at least a vegetarian. I at least feel guilty wearing fur. 
Every, every moving thing that's alive shall be food for you. <laughs> oh, man. Yikes, yikes, and double yikes. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. And you go, oh, dude. I mean, do we have to talk about blood? Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Now, don't turn it yet. And so you see what's going on. God is setting the order of all creation. He's setting the order. Man over woman. You see that. Man's the representative. And then he's saying man and woman over all creation. Man and woman given the animals. Every animal and every fish to eat. You see the order. You all see the order. And right away we're like, no, no, no. We're creation keepers. And I go, of course we're creation keepers. We don't fish out Cash's Ledger, George's Bank. I know. Again, I created environment. You know, I was running around telling everybody that, that Barry Commoner was right. We were going to run out of fossil fuels. Mass starvation. I was there. But the fact is, God has created a world that's unbelievably fertile, even and especially when it comes to fossil fuels. And so guess what? There is a truth that is morally superior to the truth of carbon to anthropogenic global warming. And that truth is that God, after the flood, said, listen, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, make fruitful love, Go to bed with your wife and make love, and I'll make you fruitful, and we'll fill the earth, and you eat everything you want. So this is God making a party for Noah at a very discouraging time. And it's not limited to that time. This is for you today. This is for me today. This is for all men and all women everywhere all across history. These are the instructions and commands God gave to our Father and you say, why our father? And I say, because every one of us is descended from Noah. Every one of us. And he goes through and he says, I'm going to suppress the animals. Did you know that it used to be true that the population in Africa went up and down based upon the elephants? Did you know this? If you read the history of Africa, the elephants were a major threat to the population groups of Africa, of sub-Saharan Africa. And so people would grow or decline according to the vulnerability of elephants. And you've read about some of the stories of elephants killing people in India, right? This is true of all the wild animals. If God, if you read Calvin and Luther about this, they lived in a time before guns, before electric fences, before the kinds of cities we have, right? And they say that if God had not restrained the animals, that man would have been wiped out on the face of the earth. But in his kindness, God created a fear of man and animals and restrained the violence against man. Why? Why did God do it? Well, you keep going. It says, 
Every moving thing in his life shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant, only you shall not eat flesh with his life, that is its blood. So God, all through scripture, makes it clear that man is not to drink the blood of animals. All right? And then he says, surely I will require your lifeblood. And so now he's speaking about man's lifeblood, and he says, anybody that sheds the blood of man, I'm going to require that lifeblood from them. All right? Are you with me? From every beast I will require it. In other words, an animal that attacks a man, a man, animal that draws blood from a man, God will deal with that animal. It is so perverse today, so utterly perverse, that you have dogs attacking human beings, and Christians think it's nothing. Because it's their little poochie. And it's wicked. Those animals that attack man, God says he will require the blood of the animal. You see that here. I will require your lifeblood from every beast I will require it. And then it moves on. And from every man. In other words, it doesn't matter whether it's an animal or a man. If they draw blood from man, if they kill man, God will deal with them. But he doesn't stop there. Keep going. Verse 6. Whoever, now we're talking about other men, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And why? For in the image of God he made man. And then, in case you missed it the first time, it's repeated. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And so, we look at verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. What that means is that God has put his image only on mankind. And so, he deals seriously with animals and men who, de- who, who shed the blood of man. Now, people, can you imagine a text that's more perfectly prophetic to America today? It goes through the nature of sexuality, right? It goes through the nature of sex. It goes through population. It goes through the marriage bed. It goes through the image of God being in man. It it actually, uh, uh, Luther on this text says, in this text, God makes himself a butcher. And he's referring to me. (laughs) He says, in this text, God puts the chicken and the rabbit and the goose on the spit. You know, over the fire. Right? And so it deals with veganism. It deals with abortion. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. It deals with war that's unjust. It deals with killings that are unjust, whether they're from police or rioters. It deals with animals that attack men. It deals with meat and diet. And I ask you, is there one thing in this that is politically correct? If you were going to write a text that was more absolutely opposed to the normal American church's conceits. Could you write a better text than this? Honestly, people. Honestly. Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, if any man would come after me, 
Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For if a man will save his life, he'll lose it. But if a man will lose his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel, he will save it. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, my thoughts above your thoughts. Listen, every single week, what I want in this pulpit, whoever preaches to you, is I want them to make the choice clear. You cannot serve God and serve the philosophies of this world. You can't do it. And it's not because the church is passive-aggressive or active-aggressive. It's not because the church thinks she's superior to the world. It's because the church is the gathering of those who call Jesus Christ Lord and are not ashamed of it. And if he's Lord, he must be Lord of something. And if it ain't our thoughts, to heck with it. And so you're left this morning with the choice. You see it. And the choice is, who do you love? Who do you love? Do you love God? Or do you love man? Do you love money? Do you love acceptance? Do you love being a, appearing to be progressive, enlightened, sophisticated? You cannot submit to these, to this tsunami of truth from God and be accepted by the world, right? Are we all agreed about that? This is countercultural. And so who do you love? And you say, well, <laughs> I thought I loved God, but this is a pretty stiff dose. And I say, with God, all things are possible. I can tell you, the changes, the things I've had to repent of in my life, oh, oh man, and some of them are pretty nasty. I don't even want to talk about them. But hey, I, you know, pierced ear, long hair, androgynous, I was there, you know. I was against everything God's word said about the meaning of masculinity and manhood. You know, I filed as a CO, didn't go to NOM. Disgusting. Listen. There were Christians in England when slavery owned the economy who stood up and said no to chattel slavery. There were Christians in America. William Lloyd Garrison in the basement of Park Street Church who stood up and said from now on no union with slaveholders. He'd been a compromised colonist prior to that. There's Clarence Jordan down in America's Georgia. He began to buy property. He was the scion, the rich man. And he began to buy property and, and carve out little farmettes for African-American families. And those families would have the white boys drive by in their pickups truck and shoot their shotguns through their front plate glass windows. And out of that came Habitat for Humanity. Out of that came, some of you will remember, Hamilton Jordan was his nephew. 
And when Hamilton Jordan under Jimmy Carter was asked, who is your hero? He said, I have two heroes, my uncle Clarence Jordan and Jimmy Carter. And I can go all through history and show you how Christians have always stood against the reigning ideologies and lies and thoughts of their time. And now you want to claim Clarence Jordan, you want to claim William Wilberforce, you want to claim William Lloyd Garrison, you want to claim all the dead heroes, but you don't want to stand for God's truth today. I can't think of anything more glorious than for Christians to say no to abortion and yes to babies today. And we're just so scared, you know, but I mean, do you know how that'll make, and imagine if William Wilberforce had said, well, imagine how it'll make me look, I can't do that, you know. I, I, you know, I want to fit in, please. Wouldn't that be wonderful to remake the movie so William Lloyd, William uh, Wilberforce goes through the whole movie saying, I just want to fit in, please. <laughs> Can I please just fit in? How about Booth, Salvation Army? Can I please just fit in? Clarence Jordan, can I please fit in, please? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. And isn't it amazing how old population control is? Can we please, you know what Dylan says? Ah, come on, sing it with me. Ah, but I was, come on. Ah, but I was so much. I'm, ah, but I was so much older than, I'm younger than that now. And that's, that's the Christian. That's the Christian. He was so old, in bondage to the world, conformed to the patterns of this wicked world. And then he was born again, and he's young. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Through the blood of Jesus. Let's, let's come to the table and let's eat.